I don't mean joyful in the sense of pretending everything is happy all the time because look, it's not. But there's a kind of a, a way to be engaging in the practice that is really alive. And inside that aliveness to the practice, there is a kind of a joy. There is a kind of a, mm, I don't, an, an aliveness, an awakeness. And that's really necessary. And, and to take one's practice seriously, in my view, what that means is to, you know, your practice matters, whether it's your first day in the Zendo or you're five decades on here, you know, your practice actually really does make a big difference, not just to you, but to all the folks that engage with you, to all the folks that you'll never see, that will never see you. I mean, my, the further on I go in this, the more convinced I become that this is really something that touches the world in ways that we cannot quantify and measure. So don't. Uh, you know, but but do engage in the practice. It really makes a great difference in the world and for yourself. Jay Rinson Wyke Sensei began his Zen studies in 1987 at Zen Mountain Monastery with John Dido Lori Roshi. In 2001, he moved to Toledo and co-founded the Toledo Zen Meditation Group with his wife, Karen Dawn Wyke Osho, and later continued his Zen study with Bonnie Myotai Trace Sensei, Daido Roshi's first Dharma heir, and later with Father Kevin Hunt Sensei. In 2009, he became a student of James Ford Roshi, from whom he received transmission in 2014. Today, Rinson serves as abbot and guiding teacher of the Great Heartland Buddhist Temple of Toledo. He is a professor of classical and jazz guitar at the University of Toledo and holds a fifth degree black belt in Aikido and serves as the guiding sensei of Shobu Aikido of Ohio. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian Whitemar. This podcast is sponsored by the Providence Zen Center, a residential Buddhist community in Cumberland, Rhode Island. The Providence Zen Center provides opportunities for short and long-term residency and holds retreats from one day to three months. For more information, please visit providencezen.org. So, Rinson. Mm-hmm. Mm. <laughs> it's nice to connect with you, Ian. <laughs> it has been good. You know, thanks for having me on. And I, I just want to say before we launch here, I'm really appreciative of the efforts you're putting in to uh, let folks know about different voices in the Dharma in the 21st century. I think it's a great project you're doing. It has been really, really fun. I, I would expect it would be, man. <laughs> <laughs> it has been so fun for me. And it's, th my first question actually comes from a seed that was planted in last week's podcast. And it was, uh, I was uh, talking to uh, Shyla Catherine, mm. a woman on the West Coast, and she made this comment about uh, Buddhism in America having such a strong presence on the coasts. Mm, yeah. You serve the great Heartland Buddhist Temple of Toledo. And when I first 
heard that name, I was like, is Toledo in the heartland? I, you know, I think of you as still pretty East. That's like, the way, that's right the way an East Detroit. Coaster thinks of us. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I think even people in Detroit, they're like, we're East, you know, because uh, you're still in the same time zone. Yeah. Well, you know, where I am in Ohio, there's lots of farms. Toledo itself is a subsidiary of Detroit and the big three. It boomed from the Great Migration in the Dust Bowl in the 20s. But it's it's actually largely a rural agrarian zone. I mean, if you go past the farm where I live and you go another 20 minutes, it's just farms as far as you can see all the way to, oh, I don't know, California maybe. I don't know. <laughs> Soy and Buddhism. Tell me a little bit about practicing Buddhism in Toledo. Yeah. What that's like. I mean, not just reading books, but living as a Buddhist I guess the first thing to say is that I'm from here. You know, I'm a native Toledan. I grew up here and I moved in 87 when I graduated from high school to go to seek wisdom in the East, you know. So I went to Boston, I went to college, and uh, that's where my interests and proclivities were well met and I was able to encounter depths and breadth of things that at that point I hadn't, obviously. Um, but then... You know, uh, after 15 years or so in Boston, um, I got my degrees playing, you know, music, uh, Berkeley College of Music in the New England Conservatory. I started practicing Aikido and studying Zen. I met uh, who would become my lovely wife of forever, uh, Karen Dawn Wyke. And um, then, you know, we had our daughter and what to do. You know, the city suddenly went from being sexy and fun and cool to being, um, you know, with Isabella infant in my arms, the city suddenly was sharp, rusty and loud and noisy and just, we got to get out of here. You know, I mean, it was an instant kind of clarity we had and it took a while. We cast all around where to go, where to be. And a large factor for me was that my mom and dad and I are very close. Isabella's the only grandkid. Plus, there was nothing here like the interests that I had. And it seemed to me uh, a, a good a good deal to come back here to the Midwest and make the Dharma available. So it was a conscious decision. There were multiple influencers, uh, family being up there for sure. But it, it, it turns out that people in Toledo, uh, the Sangha that I serve here is, first of all, the Sangha is flourishing. I mean, we have something like 150 households that would self-identify as being members of the Sangha here. And there's a quality to the practice that has a different feeling to me. I mean, we're not we're not on the coasts. We don't live in the hustle and bustle of Boston or New York or San Diego or San Francisco. Uh, there, there are not um, different Dharma teachers every other block, you know. And so I think that there's kind of a quality here of um, simplicity of joy. There's there's a very earnest quality here. There's not a sense um, of jadedness about spiritual practice. Folks in this area that come to practice with the temple are immensely grateful to be able to find other folks that are on the same vibe. And so the community itself is very, very connected together, you know, in a way that is not really the same as my experience with the sanghas that I've traveled to. Now, in fairness, when I did my training, I, you know, I would drive however long, five hours at the least, do a session for a week and then drive back. Okay. So my experience of those places of training, and I'm talking about Zen Mountain Monastery, Myotai Sensei used to rent space out of Garrison Institute 
uh, in the Hudson Valley, going to study with Father Kevin, and then even the Worcester Temple, where I studied with James, all of those places, in my experience, where you drive forever, at, show up, do session, and leave, right? Here, what's happening is there's an actual temple. People are together, people are practicing together, and they're really living their lives together. So there's a session culture. We do a session every month. Um, but there's also a strong like Sunday service church kind of culture, I guess you could say, where families come. We have a thriving Dharma school with young young kids in it. And uh, we're lucky to have a number of actual certified educators in our Sangha that do work with the kids and the programming that we've developed for them. We've got a thriving university here, the University of Toledo, you know, as opposed to some of the places I went where people come from all over the world, they get their degree and they split back to all over the world. Well, Toledo University, um, you know, a lot of the people come from the region and they tend to stay in the region. So it's a very stable community, right? So people come into the Dharma as a college student and they tend to stick around. Uh, we've got young families with kids, uh, empty nesters, elders, uh, kind of a full age range of folks. Those are a few thoughts that come right off the top of my head, you know. I mean, like just just last within the last week, we had a house blessing for a young family that just got their new home. And I don't know, 20 some out of the Sangha showed up to have a beautiful ceremony and ritual like acknowledgement and blessing of their home. We've had a funeral uh, for a Sangha member's mother and we've got a baby welcoming ceremony coming up in a couple of weeks. So there's a lot of life together that's happening in our community. Right. So a very lively congregation yeah, it is. is what it sounds like. This podcast really is about the practice life. It's not about the study of particular sutras mm -hmm. or any, not that I'm opposed to that, but it's really mm. about the practice life. And I'm wondering, is there a, a quality? Is there a hunger for the Dharma oh, that's yeah. appearing in Toledo <laughs> oh that yeah. you're seeing? Or I mean, part of it is, I think that one of the features that's very important to the community here is ritual. And another quality that's really important is coziness and comfort and, and family feeling connection, okay? And I think that in a lot of Sangha, it's hard for these two needs or wants or desires to actually work together. And for some reason here they do. So we have a strong culture of suddenly we can become very, very formal and do pretty high ceremony kind of stuff. Like this last uh, Sunday, we just welcomed three new uh, Shokan students. And these are folks that have entered in a very deep student-teacher relationship with Dawn and myself, right? And so we have a very intense process for that. There's a year-long formation program. Uh, it culminates with a Rahatsu session. And then these folks wear robes that are very identifiable. They have a nice gray student robe. And giving it to them, we do a ceremony at midnight and it's a beautiful thing. All the other Shokan students are there to witness it. On Sunday, we have a big public expression of acknowledgement of that. And then the community is invited to offer words of encouragement and blessing for those new folks. So we have these very powerful ritualistic ways of blessing and acknowledging uh, and encouraging and invoking reality and all these things. And then, you know, as soon as the ritual is done, 
um, on a Sunday service, it's it's incredibly comfortable and casual. There are cozy couches, there's teddy bears, there's cheese on the buffet and people hang out, you know. So there's some kind of a quality there where I think uh, the, the Midwestern mind is very grounded in family life, very grounded in belonging and is very practical. You know, the the socks tend to be pulled up, the shoulders are broad and can carry much, but there's a kind of a groundedness there. But And there's this desire for the deep work of seeing into the koan, of sitting deeply, of having a strong, rigorous practice. And what do you think the appeal is of the Dharma to this heartland community? Well, gosh, I think really people ache for for community, connectedness, but not just community and connectedness. They also ache for the truth of, of their lives for what the Dharma really has to offer. People's bullshit Mm. meters are much, much more finely attuned than they were 20 years ago. Okay. So I think that there's an increasing Mm -hmm. uh, skepticism and a healthy critique going on of religion in general. I think in general, religion is probably one of the best ways to get a good person to do a terrible thing that humanity has ever come up with. There's a huge shadow side to religious practice. More and more, uh, your common Mm -hmm. person is aware of these things, has encountered these ideas, and is able to critically reflect on their religious experience, their spiritual experience. It's just the case uh, that the Dharma stands up to those critiques. If it's wielded well, if the teacher is upright, if the community is is strong, then um, it, it actually, you can tick off all the boxes of skepticism and critique and remain with like this really beautiful practice that's done in community. You know, there there are some folks here that have been horribly scarred by the tradition of their birth, uh, their religious practice of birth. There are some that are simply outgrew it. There are many here who grew up in an atheist or agnostic home that fell into some kind of a self-defined, isolated spiritual practice. Uh, all of these things are in the mix, you know. But uh, part of what makes it work is a real lineage with strong practice, uh, guiding teachers that are ethical, upright, transparent, accountable, and hold the Dharma really, for real. Uh, and then that community aspect. You know, the thought I had <laughs> yeah. when you talked about the bullshit meter, um, it reminded me of one of your talks where mm. uh, you were talking about letting go of merit and how the transactional thinking that happens a lot of the time yeah. gets in the way of discovering our true self. And the transactional, I think that's one of our great critiques of, of religion is that there seems to be this transactional thing. There's this appeal for mm. merit, but also you know to appear good and uh, re- seeking of reward. And, and I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about how you see the, you know, that desire mm. for merit or the transactional thinking getting in a way of finding your true self. I th- my experience as a, as a per- you know, as a practitioner myself, and then also as someone who guides others, what I see is that it, it's almost inevitable that there's a beginning usefulness to that kind of thinking. It, it's almost inevitable that you, a person comes to the Dharma because they're in pain because they're suffering, they come to the Dharma because they've had some insight that they don't know how to integrate. Um, And so I think in the beginning of training, that's really healthy. I don't think that's a problem. But eventually it becomes 
it does become a problem. Doing the practice of the Dharma, practicing the Dharma because you're going to get something, because you're attaining something, eventually, sooner hopefully than later, that really has to be let go of. Uh, because all those sort of ideas about what I'm going to get it actually end up as kind of a weird filter between ourselves and the life that we're actually living. Mm. You know, another one of the talks that you gave uh, were about the demons yeah. that show up. And I think this is some of that shadow side as well. I went, I, mm. I hadn't heard the story of the the necklace of the fingers. And so I went and looked Ugly it up. Mala, yeah. you know, <laughs> and so, you, but you told the story, I think it was Ananda uh, saw all of these demons and they were, they all appeared as the Buddha. Was it Ananda who was doing this? They oh, all yeah. appeared as the Buddha or Bodhisattvas, <laughs> and they were all preaching yeah. the Dharma. But he knew that they were demons. And it it was so interesting to think about yeah. how, of course. Well, you know, you know the demons, uh, so to speak. Now, we, we can go very Jungian on this, or we can get, you know, uh, literal about it. But, the you know, the, one of the qualities yeah. is, is that they show up in a way that hooks into your mind your particular karmic trajectory, right? So like, you know, James Ford Roshi, my transmitting teacher, has a great saying that he'll use now and then, which is, well, that one's not my demon. I've got other ones, but that one is. <laughs> and I think that's very insightful. You know, now I've imagine yourself, ones. you're Ananda, yeah. okay? At least the way the tales are told, the stories we have, the tradition, the lore, right? Here we are. Ananda can remember everything the Buddha said, and yet he's sort of like the spoon that never tastes the soup. You know, he transports the soup to someone else's mouth, but he doesn't really get it. He's kind of the fall guy right. in a lot of the stories. And so he's someone who's got his whole identity and virtue wrapped around knowing the right teachings and remembering them, right? So what more perfect hell could be created <laughs> for him <laughs> than to have all these different demons showing up as the Buddha, right. all arguing about which one is the true Dharma. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a, boy, that's a perfect nightmare for a guy like him. Right. And you know, that's, now that's not my demon. Okay. That I'm like, whatever you guys go have a party. I'm going to sit, you know, that wouldn't bother me. I have other demons. Uh, but, but that is, you know, the, the, the way it actually shows up in our practice, the way it shows up, in the belly of a deep session retreat or out in the middle of our workaday life is very tailored to the life experience we've lived up to that moment. You know, and that's why they're tricky to see, man. Mm. That's why they're very tricky to see. Mm. They slip under our radar because they're, they know our mental and emotional operating system so well, these kind of unhelpful subroutines of the mind, so to speak. So that's where practice where you let go of literally everything. You, know, you die every time you sit in Zazen. Just let the whole thing go. Whatever flavor demon you've got, it, it has nothing to grab onto at that point. And you're not feeding it energy by resisting it or pleading with it or fighting it or aligning with it or anything. You just let it be, let it go. And then it turns out that it's like the volume on the uh, the fever that it creates just drops way, 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 way down. And then eventually they just don't have a place to get a hold on you anymore. They're still around. Our mind streams still have a definite pattern and an inclination. Um, you know, you can pass all the koans that exist and be as acknowledged as is possible. You'll still have a personality with a shadow side and a, and a beautiful side. We all do. But the effect that that has is in, it is entirely different now that you've seen it. Hmm. Absolutely. 
and it's mm. kind of circling back around to where we started just about being in the heartland. You, you know, I, I live on uh river street I know here it well. in Cambridge, Mass. Yeah. I live at the Cambridge Zen center right down the road is uh insight meditation <laughs> and right, th- yeah, right beyond that is greater Boston Zen. I mean, they're all like right on the same road and there are so many mm. people walking mm. around in between. Yeah unsure I, I get that who to listen to and um and there's mm, this great mm, confusion mm, yeah. like oh well these people are better these people are better and <laughs> um yeah and how demons can get into our mind oh about- it's a tough one i know you know i mean the, what i would advise somebody in that scene is you know you've got to you you can you can have not only just a week or a day or a month or a year but you can have decades roll past you not being quite convinced, or standing back at an ironic distance from practice, you know, it'd be like saying, I don't really know which mm-hmm. instrument I want to play. So I'm going to not start any music lessons until I'm absolutely certain that I'm absolutely certain for the rest of my life, this is the perfect instrument I'll always want to play forever. That child is never going to start music lessons. I mean, you don't have that kind of clarity, you know, it's just like maybe you do, a few of us do, but they need a drummer in the band, I'll play drums, sure. And then you start and then you find out, whoa, I'm actually really drawn to the saxophone. The fact of a person's musicianship is still getting nourished, still getting expressed and evolving, you see. So I would say start, just go. You can have beautiful expressions of the Dharma that look very differently from each other. And ultimately, the question is, who are you in the Dharma? What is your expression of the Dharma? Now, in the same way that you can't just go through your life sounding like someone else. Who who do you sound like? See, this is one of the great virtues of jazz music. Sonny Rollins sounds like Sonny Rollins. Well, it's like that in the Dharma, you know. My teacher, James Ford Roshi, and I, we don't sound exactly like each other, <laughs> you know. And thank God uh, he's, he's hip enough to realize we don't need to. You know, I mean, the Dharma is no. the Dharma. There's yeah. definitely a moment where you can sense, yeah, this cat can play, right? right? And then there's a moment where you can sense, all right, this cat cannot play, right? There is a thing there that's identifiable. And particularly <laughs> anyone who really is a, yeah. a really good jazz musician, you can tell really quickly, okay? But then I think what the Dharma needs in the 21st century is people that hold very clear, true, authentic lines of practice that are accountable, transparent, and can just kick your butt. I mean, they've got it going on, you know? And then how do you express it? How do you see it? So uh, I've encountered, I've been fortunate enough in my Dharma trajectory to encounter many, many teachers that have been great influences on me. And to a person, I I bow to them endlessly. Well, you have this great story where you talk about having it really kind of already figured out, you already know how to sit, all this sort of stuff. And then this person said, yeah. cut it out. <laughs> there, there is this disease that, that can happen. Like if I, again, I'll right. go back to jazz because it's, it's an analogy that works in my life. If you've got a person who's so confident that they know exactly what they're going to play and they don't even care anymore, they're not playing really. The best jazz musicians are the ones that are on the edge of their breath their soul is stretched as thin as it can be, and they're pushing it further. And that's what the Dharma should be like. It should not be this, uh, just sit there in this blackout stupor. It's got to be alive. It's got to be awake. It's got to be in the moment. It's vibrant. And it can cry its heart out. It can be depressed. It can be elated. It can be anything in between. 
um, but it's fully alive, see? And so I don't remember exactly whose admonishment this was, but I'm sure I deserved it well and, and, and still do in some ways, you know? I mean, me too. I'm, I'm someone who can uh, easily fall into not staying vibrantly alive to the practice, and that's the edge for me. I make sure that I do. Now, tell me a little bit about working with Kevin Hunt. Yeah, he's a, not only a monk. This is a, a Catholic priest, monk, Catholic monk. He's, he's a Trappist, okay? <laughs> Trappist, yeah. Uh, if, you, if we get into the world of Catholicism, I mean, that's the tradition I was born into. Um, and I never had this massive, I hate this, I'm leaving moment. I just naturally grew into a contemplative and a mystic. And I was unable to find models and guides that could meet me where I was. When I found Zen Mountain Monastery, um, by that time, I was conversant with Benedictines and Carthusians, Dominicans, Franciscans, Jesuits, uh, uh, and Trappists. And Thomas Merton was a huge influence on me. And these are all different flavors of Catholic monasticism and religious life, see. So mm-hmm. then seemed to me to be like a cool japanese version or something, you know? And it took a while yeah. for me to process because I— uh, you know, I was uh, when I was really, really young. My teddy bear was either a, a Catholic priest saying mass, a guitar player, or um, a martial artist. <laughs> you know, and so these things have been with me since the beginning, right? And I was very kind of associated with my Catholic identity and my family and everything like that. But I just couldn't. That wasn't stronger than the need for my insight to be well met and to be guided. And so when I met. Catholic monks, the, the basic tra- trajectory they had for me was come live as we do. You know, everything else in your mm-hmm. life goes away. You become a monastic. And that's certainly an option. Well, for me, that wasn't the right fit. Well, what I found in Zen was a teacher who gave me practices who, who could not only hear what I was playing, but they could play things I couldn't hear to switch metaphors again. And it was clear to me that that was the case. Um, in fact, my first encounter with Dido Roshi, I, I brought in a chunk of a St. John of the Cross poem, and I had had some insight into this. What I didn't know then that I know now is I had a koanic insight into the text. See, I was responding to it as a uh-huh. koan student, but I, I asked him, could I ask you a question about St. John of the Cross? And, and Dido Roshi said, sure. And I read him the lines, and he said, well, how do you see it? And I responded. And then he said, Good do you know the next lines? And he quoted me the next lines. And I said, yeah, I know the lines. I was surprised that he did. And he said, right. he said, well, how do you see that? And I said, I don't know. I don't know how to see that. And he said, do you know how to work on it? And I said, no, I have no idea how I do this. And he's like, here's what you do. Start counting your breaths. And he, he brought me to a very specific way of practicing, which is exactly what I needed. See, it made sense to me as a martial artist. It made sense to me as a musician. There's a teacher there's a practice, you go and you get corrections and you, you get it going on, you know, and that's how this works. Well, years later, um, I had, we had been studying with Myotai Sensei. Her health failed in such a way that she was no longer able to run retreats reliably. We were casting around what to do because by that time we had a community here in Toledo. It turned out that Father Hunt, was at St. Joseph's Abbey in Spencer, Massachusetts. Um, and we're just crazy people. We're, we're used to driving back and forth the 14 hours, <laughs> you know, 
to do these things. Uh, And so I thought, you know, I'm going to go and meet this guy because Thomas Merton was a huge influence on me. As a younger man, I, I listened to all the recordings when Thomas Merton was training his novices. You know, when you when you read his books, mm. you're getting an edited, approved, official text. It's brilliant, but it's very edited. When you read his letters, you're getting spontaneous Merton. But when you hear his voice and you hear him teaching his novices, now you get the character of the of the person, which is joyful, witty, humorous, as deep as you can get. When I heard that Kevin Hunt um, was a Zen master and was a Trappist, and his teacher, Robert Kennedy, he was here in Toledo, and he gave a, a, an introductory kind of talk at the Corpus Christi Parish, which is attached to the University of Toledo here. And so we went down wearing our rock suit. And of course, he knew what that was. No one else in the church knew what that was. <laughs> but we were invited to have dinner with mm-hmm. him after. And he very graciously sat next to Karen and I, Dawn and I, and we had a beautiful conversation with him. And it came up that Kevin Hunt was a Trappist and he had received transmission and he was would be someone I could approach. And so I said, yeah. So I got in touch with him, drove out there. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of how it was. The Trappists, you've got at least a six-month uh, a wait list, okay, to be able to stay with them. They're not a hotel, all right? Well, uh, so I just went out there and I just slept in my car <laughs> for like a week. <laughs> there, was a, there was a health club in the mm. town down the street. I bought a week membership to the health club so I could shower up. Um, but, you know, I, I just uh, sat in the church and did Zazen and I met with Father Hunt once a day for Doksan and then uh, slept in the car and made it go, you know? And, um, and the thing about him, okay, is that he, Father Hunt, is a very, very deep monk. First of all, the, the man is a true monk in the Western tradition, but really just in the human monastic experience. Here's a living embodiment of it. And he's very um, earthy. He's very sweet. He's very present. He's very humble. But he's also incredibly powerful in a very different kind of way, Um and not only that, he's a Roman Catholic priest, but he also is a is a Zen master, see? So I began to study with him, and we, uh, let's see, we were working through the Mumonkan together. And, and the way it worked, and this was so helpful for me personally, is we did the cases first, just straight up. You know, the Harada Yasutani Koan curriculum kind of approach that Maizumi Roshi had, that James has, that I have. We did the koan in that way. Fine. But then Father Kevin would say, okay, now how would a Christian do this? And so we would play the same tune of that case in a Christian key and do a koanic presentation, address the case koanically, not speculatively. I'm not talking about theological assumptions or anything like that. Actually show the case in a way that would be familiar to any koan practitioner. But it was so powerful for me because it really affirmed for me how I had integrated and translated my experience of my Catholic upbringing. And it really affirmed uh, the way I was seeing things. And and it was just really a a great relief to me immensely. So, and I do remember I asked him a question. I said, how many of your monastic brothers here share your spirituality? 
and he got very serious looking <laughs> in a way. And then uh, he he was sitting in this big plush chair kind of thing and he with big arms, you know, by the fireplace kind of thing. And he put his, he folded his hands together and he made kind of like a Mr. Spock mudra with his hands or something and pondered, you know, and, and then he looked up and he said, maybe one. Yeah, that's mm. what I said too. Hmm. You know, like a lot of the younger monastics there are, at least were, young and incredibly pious. Navinas to this one, Navinas to that one. Very institutionally oriented, very pious, kind of brittle. Uh, none of which describes Father Kevin. And interestingly, there's kind of a trend in some of the younger Dharma folks that are coming back from Japan and in some kind of a way, I, I smell a little bit of that overly institutional orientation and that uber piousness. And that concerns me because um, awakening is not about being pious and institutionally aligned. So mm. anyway, there was Father Kevin. Now, for him, the interesting thing was uh, we had great affinity and stuff, but I, at that point, the the sangha here was growing further, and he would not be able to really give me everything I needed. Uh, the other uh, teacher that came upon the horizon was James Ford. Interestingly, you know, uh, Mio and Roshi, it's his Dharma name, he arrived in Boston pretty much the same time we left, right? So he had been building the Boundless Way experiment um, and it came to our awareness that he was there. And what I was really looking for was priestly ordination in the Japanese Soto uh, sect, which is very important to me, but also that koan line. So right. it turns out that James Mjolnir Ford Roshi has both of those aspects. And so this is a person I want to meet, you know. So I actually at one point I went out and did a I did a week with Father Kevin and then the, uh, that ended, and the next day I went and did the uh, session with James Ford and his folks. And then with him, now I found, hmm. okay, this is this is where all these pieces come together. And it, it's been a great fit, and we're great friends to this day. And I am i can't bow deep and long enough to any of those folks, but definitely to James Ford Roshi, my transmitting teacher. You know, I, I guess, Ian, in closing, one thing I'd like to just share is that um, I really hope for folks— that they take their practice of the Dharma seriously and joyfully. I think, I think both of these things are really radically necessary ingredients. And, and I don't mean joyful in the sense of pretending everything is happy all the time because look, it's not, you know, I get that, but there's a kind of a, a way to be engaging in the practice that is really alive and inside that aliveness to the practice there is a kind of a joy there is a kind of a of a mm, I don't, an aliveness an awakeness and that's really necessary and and to take one's practice seriously in my view what that means is to you know your practice matters whether it's your first day in the zendo or you're five decades on here, you know, your practice actually really does make a big difference, not just to you, but to all the folks that engage with you, to all the folks that you'll never see, that will never see you. I mean, my, the further on I go in this, the more convinced I become that this is really something that touches the world in ways that we cannot quantify and measure. 
So don't, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but do engage in the practice. It really makes a great difference in the world and for yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Jay Rinson Wyke Sensei encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more about his teaching by listening to his podcast or finding his retreat schedule at BuddhistTempleOfToledo.org. Or you can look at his personal website at jrinsonwike.com. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quanam Online Sangha. Listeners of this podcast are eligible for a free month of membership, which includes individual Kungan interviews with Zen teachers, discounts on webinars and online classes, and access to a private community where students can discuss their practice and receive guidance. To access your free month of membership, simply visit quantumzen.org online and use the promo code SITBREATHEBOW, all one word. My name is Ian Whitemar. I hope you'll join me again next week.